Section 36 of A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Sherman, Jr., Washington, D.C. A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 8, Spheres of Action, Chapter 1, Jews, Part 8. From this sketch of the Portuguese Inquisition, we can readily estimate its efficiency in keeping the Spanish institutions supplied with material as the native stock grew Christianized. Not the least unfortunate effect of this was its influence in maintaining the prejudice that might otherwise have subsided, and that consequently became one of race as much as of religion. The venom which we have seen in the work of da Costa Matos was, if possible, exceeded in the Sentinella contra Judios of Padre Fray Francisco de Torrejoncillos, published as late as 1673 and reprinted in 1728 and 1731. In this popular exposition of Christian rancor, no story is too wild and unnatural to be unworthy of credence, if it illustrates the innate and ineradicable depravity of the Jew and his quenchless desire to work evil to the Christian. The fables of the Fortalicium Fidei are repeated as incontestable truths, and new ones are invented to prove that the virus is as active as ever. It makes no difference if the Jew is baptized, for this does not change his nature and his faith, and he remains the same implacable enemy. The same temper is manifested in a memorial, drawn up about this time by an inquisitor, in answer to a proposition for moderating the harshness of inquisitorial procedure. The writer was evidently a man of learning and culture, but his paper is a bitter tirade against the Jews, insisting upon their diabolical nature and asserting them to be much worse now than when they crucified Christ. The evil is in their blood, forcing them to hate and rage against Christ, the Virgin, and all who professed the Christian faith. Popular beliefs that they had tales, and that they were distinguishable by a peculiar odor which they exhaled, and that, as physicians, they killed one out of five of their Christian patients, were persistent outgrowths of the hatred thus inculcated. Even to call a man a Jew was an offense justiciable by the Inquisition, for when, in 1646, Padre Boyle, a royal preacher, in a sermon stigmatized as a Jew, Fray Enriquez, of his own mercenarian order, the tribunal of Toledo promptly sent for him and, after detaining him for six months, sentenced him to two years' exile from the court, during which he was forbidden to preach. When, about 1632, the new Christians made an effort to procure a removal of their disabilities, Juan Edan de la Parra, who, though an inquisitor, was a poet and a man of culture, opposed it in an elaborate essay, cautiously couched in Latin, for the matter was too delicate for popular discussion. He did not pander to vulgar prejudice, but addressed himself to arguments of state policy, which are a curious illustration of what, on such a subject, an intelligent man regarded as conclusive. He deplores the decline of population, of agriculture, of shipping, and of the mechanic arts, which he attributes to the insidious practices of the Jews, their avoidance of manual labor, and their addiction to usury. Look at Portugal, he says, where this traitorous race stimulated the ardor of foreign conquest, until it embraced the East and the West Indies, and then cunningly corrupted the native virtue with the wealth and luxury thus acquired, until they have succeeded in eliminating the heroes and destroying the heroic spirit which rendered Portugal so formidable. 
It is this craving for Oriental luxuries, shrewdly stimulated by the new Christians, which is undermining the robustness of Spanish virtue. The useful is neglected for the superfluous, and thus agriculture declines. He scarcely seems to recognize the tribute which he pays to the superior endowment of the Jew, which he winds up by foretelling that, if the restrictions and disabilities imposed on the new Christians are removed, they will acquire such power that they will reduce the old Christians to subjection. There was some foundation for the fear that the barriers between the races would be removed. In the exhaustion of Spanish finance, Olivares, in 1634, opened negotiations with the Jews of Africa and the Levant, and royal licenses were granted for the admission of individuals. In 1641, relations were resumed. They sent representatives whom he received and kept with him for a considerable time, silencing the remonstrances of the Suprema with the assertion that they were there on the service of the king. It was proposed that they should be allowed to reside in the suburbs of Madrid, in a separate quarter, with a synagogue as in Rome. He won over some members of the royal council and some theologians, but the Inquisition was inexorable, and Cardinal Monti, the nuncio, told the king, in public audience, that Olivares must be dismissed if the harvest of the Lord was to be cleansed of tares and the risk be averted of ruining the faith of Spain. Incidentally, Olivares interfered with the Inquisition by demanding the papers in certain cases. Inquisitor-General Sotemayor refused, but, finding himself powerless to resist, placed the documents at the foot of a crucifix, whence they were carried to Olivares, who burnt them and released a number of prisoners. It is even said that he contemplated abolishing the Inquisition, but Philip IV was too profoundly convinced of its necessity to both church and state to entertain the project and there may well be truth in the assertion that his quarrel with the holy office was contributory to his downfall. This put an end to all negotiations, and, in 1643, we find the Suprema instructing the Valencia Tribunal to forbid the landing of the Jews who were coming from Oran. Some stir was caused, in 1645, by two Jews, Salman Zaportas and Baal Zaportas, who presented themselves in Valencia with a royal license, dated in 1634, and one from the Marquis of Viana, governor of Oran. They applied to the tribunal for permission to attend to their business in the city and to wear Christian garments so as not to be mobbed. The tribunal was puzzled and ordered them not to leave the city under pain of 200 pesos while it consulted the Suprema. The latter represented to the king the danger impending on the faith from this disregard of his orders by ministers who issued licenses, to which he responded with instructions to send them back to Iran. The causes leading to the cedula of 1634 no longer existed. If in future their coming was considered necessary, the governor of Oran must report and await the royal decision and a special license. There is no reason to suppose that the venturesome Israelites had anything more important in view than private business. One of the most prominent reasons urged for the establishment and perpetuation of the Inquisition was the zeal of the crypto-Jews in proselyting and the danger to which the purity of religion was thus exposed, an argument which served its purpose, however discrediting to the firmness of Spanish faith. Cases, however, were never cited in proof, nor could they be, for Judaism is a matter of race as much as of dogma. The Jews have never sought to convert the Gentiles and, in Spain of all lands, it was clearly preposterous that men, who could only exist by concealing their belief, would incur the certainty of detection and of pitiless punishment by the unpardonable offense of seeking the apostasy of their Christian neighbors. 
What conversions there were were spontaneous, and these served to intensify the horror of Judaism and to keep alive the sense of danger arising from the presence of those suspected of cherishing the ancient faith. Fray Diago de Asuncao, burnt in Lisbon in 1603, as a convert to the law of Moses, is said to have been led to this fatal step by witnessing the constancy in martyrdom of those who suffered for their belief. A more remarkable case was that of Lope de Vera, which aroused universal interest throughout Spain and pointed the moral that the safety of religion lay in the ignorance of the faithful, thus justifying the prescience of Valdez when he placed on the first Spanish index a translation of Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews. Lope de Vera was the son of a gentleman of San Clemente, of gentle blood and limpieza. At the age of nineteen, he was a student at Salamanca, so deeply learned in Hebrew and Arabic that, in July 1638, he competed for a chair of Hebrew. His studies led him to embrace Judaism, and, with the zeal of a convert, he sought to win over a fellow student, who denounced him to the Inquisition. There was a second witness, and yet the consulta de fe of Valladolid was not unanimous in voting his arrest. It had to be ordered by the Suprema, and was executed June 24, 1639. He freely admitted the truth of the accusation and much more, but denied intention, assuming that what he had said was for the sake of argument, and asserting that he went to confession and communion and carried a rosary. There was variation and equivocation in his successive audiences. There was delay and doubt on the part of the Inquisition, and the trial dragged on. On April 16th and May 23rd, 1641, he revoked all that he had confessed, and then suddenly, on May 29th, he announced that he wished to be a Jew and to hold all that the Jews believed, for this was the truth revealed to them by God, which he would defend with his life. Hitherto he had believed what the Church taught, but now he adhered to the law given by God to Israel. The religion of Rome and all other religions were false. He had never practiced the Jewish observances, but would do so in the future. No one had taught him this, but God, in his mercy, had brought him to the truth. Learned men were called in to wean him from his errors, but they declared his pertinacy to be terrible and that, with his knowledge of Hebrew, he would be most dangerous. He refused to have an advocate or to make defense, persisting that he was a Jew and would die for the law of Moses. On August 8th, the Alcade reported that he had circumcised himself with a bone, and the physician sent to examine him verified this, and reported that he said he hoped to be burnt alive, for he sought the honor of martyrdom and would go to paradise. Earnest and protracted efforts were made to reclaim him, but in vain. Then he was asked to set forth the Hebrew texts on which he relied, so that the calificadores could confute them. To enable him to do this, he was furnished, December 23rd, with a Bible, paper, ink, and a goose quill, but the latter he rejected, saying that it was forbidden by the law of Moses, and a bronze pen, plume de bronze, was given to him. Further conferences followed, and much patience was manifested, until he refused absolutely to speak in the audiences. The baffled tribunal appealed to the Suprema, which ordered fifty lashes. He endured them unflinchingly on June 17, 1642, and maintained his unbroken silence. This was not obstructive, for his ratification of his confessions was necessary, but, when they and the evidence were read to him, he closed his ears with his fingers and refused even to listen. It was proposed to torture him, but the Suprema humanely discarded formalities and ordered the case to be closed and voted upon. The vote was taken January 27, 1643, to relax him with confiscation, but in confirming it the Suprema ordered further efforts for his conversion. There was no haste in executing the sentence. 
In January 1644, he was still persisting in silence, except that, when the inquisitors made their weekly visits, he would cry, Viva la ley de Moisson, after which not another word could be extracted from him. At length, on June 25, 1644, he was burnt alive, maintaining to the end his unalterable constancy. The inquisitor Moscoso, in a letter to the Countess of Monterey, declared that he had never witnessed so ardent a desire for death, such perfect assurance of salvation, or such unconquerable firmness. His fate made a profound impression on his co-religionists. Some years later, Juan Pereira, a youth on trial before the Valladolid Tribunal, referred to him repeatedly and declared that he had seen him after death, riding on a mule and glistening with the sweat that was on him when he was taken to the Quemadero. Lope de Vera was a most undesirable convert, for his case could not fail to arouse afresh the dread of infection and to stimulate the Inquisition to increased activity. Yet such stimulus was scarce needed, for it was incessantly vigilant and was troubled with few scruples when on the track of a suspect. An illustrative case offers itself when, in September 1642, the Tribunal of Galicia wrote to Valladolid that a prisoner on trial testified that Antonio Lopez, in Manzaneda de Tribes, had practiced Judaism, and it asked for his arrest. And Antonio Lopez was readily found in Valladolid and was promptly thrown in prison September 16th. He denied the accusation. No other testimony could be found against him, and his trial dragged on until, February 3, 1644, there was a vote in Discordia. The case went to the Suprema, which ordered further inquiry to be made of the Galician Tribunal, when it was discovered that the prisoner had never been in Manzaneda. This should have been conclusive, but, when another vote was reached, August 13th, it was again in Discordia, and the Suprema again ordered investigations which proved fruitless. A third inconclusive vote was taken in 1645, and then the Suprema ordered the arrest of a second Antonio Lopez, a painter, who had been discovered in Sanabria. He was arrested in December 1645, and easily proved himself to be an old Christian of strict observance, but to no purpose, for the blundering consulta de fe voted in Discordia April 30, 1646, and the Suprema ordered him to be exposed to threatened torture. He was stripped and bound on the trestle, but his nerves did not give way, and he steadily asserted his orthodoxy. The resources of the baffled tribunal were now exhausted, and, on July 14th, the Suprema ordered the cases to be suspended. When the two Antonio Lopez were released, not acquitted, after one had been in prison nearly four years, and the other had been subjected to the agony of impending torture, merely because they bore a name which chanced to be mentioned in a distant tribunal as that of a Judaizer. Not quite so hard was the case of Gaspar Rodriguez, arrested by the Tribunal of Valladolid, October 4, 1648, on the strength of advices from Cuenza, and discharged October 2, 1649, because it was tardily recognized that he did not correspond with the description of the real culprit. How slender was the evidence required when a Portuguese was concerned is seen in another case at Valladolid. When the inquisitor, Pedro Munoz, made a visitation of Oviedo in 1619-1620, two women testified that Lucia Nunez, a Portuguese settled in Benevente, put on clean chemises on Saturdays. When March 5, 1620, the tribunal voted on the cases brought in by Munoz, this was suspended, but the Suprema ordered the papers to be sent to it and, on August 17, 1621, it instructed the tribunal to arrest Lucia and sequestrate her property. 
She was accordingly brought to Valladolid, October 30, 1621, and thrown into the secret prison. On her first audience, in reply to the ordinary question whether she knew the cause of her arrest, she said that it was because she changed her linen on Fridays and Saturdays, as she did every day, for the sake of cleanliness, especially when she was suckling her children, and she did not know that she was committing any offense. It was true that she was born in Portugal, but both her parents were Castilians and Old Christians. The trial went through its regular course. Nothing else could be found against her and, on March 15, 1622, the consulta de fe voted to acquit her and lift the sequestration, which was done accordingly the next day, after nearly five months of incarceration. When this kind of work was on foot throughout Spain, it is easy to realize how the unfortunate Portuguese were tracked, from one refuge to another, by the implacable vigilance of the Inquisition, with its network of tribunals, in constant correspondence, and its commissioners and familiars everywhere on the watch. That vigilance was kept alive by the frequent discovery of communities of Judaizers, more or less numerous, whose trials revealed the names of abundant accomplices. The tribunal of Yerena was busy from 1635 to 1638 with the Complicidad de Badajoz, a group of Portuguese whom it had unearthed at Badajoz and, when the Suprema called for a list of those inculpated by the prisoners whom it had not been able to arrest, they amounted to a hundred and fifty. In 1647, Juan del Cerro of Ciudad Rodrigo was a prisoner in the royal jail of Valladolid, Apparently hoping for release, he denounced himself to the Inquisition and told a story of a congregation of Jews at Ciudad Rodrigo, which met every Friday in the house of the president, Pablo de Herrera, paymaster of the army on the Portuguese frontier, when the ceremony of scourging images of Christ and the Virgin was performed and then, during Holy Week, they were burnt. Numerous arrests were made and the trials dragged on until 1651. Torture was employed, parents and children, brothers and sisters testified against each other, but there were no pertinacious impenitents or negativos and none were relaxed. That Juan del Cerro's story of the outrages on the sacred images was recognized as fictitious is evident from the suspension of ten of the cases. Juan del Cerro made nothing by his device, for, though he was not prosecuted for false witness, when the trials were over in 1651, he was handed back to the royal court. Toledo was equally active, for, in an auto held the same year, it had 32 Judaizers in person and 30 effigies of fugitives. Nearly the whole of these were Portuguese, for, by this time, Castilian Judaizers were of comparatively rare occurrence. In the great Seville auto of 1660, out of 81 Judaizers, nearly all Portuguese, a group of 37 were from Osuna and another of eight from Utrera. There were 47 reconciled, 7 relaxed in person, and 27 in effigy. The numerous effigies which figure in the autos indicate those who were compromised in the confessions of the penitents, and who succeeded for a time in eluding arrest. As a rule, it may be said that this was but a temporary reprieve from the all-pervading vigilance of the Inquisition. Sooner or later it gathered them in despite change of residence and name, and all the precautions of the hunted against the hunter. This is well illustrated in the vicissitudes of a colony of Portuguese, some twenty or thirty in number, in the little town of Beaz, Jaén, which throw a vivid light on the miseries of these unfortunates. They had succeeded in living there obscurely for ten years or more, supporting themselves by such industries as they could follow, when some imprudence or the watchfulness of some neighbor drew upon them the attention of the tribunal of Coenza, which arrested thirteen of them. 
From these, the names of nine others were obtained, for whom warrants of arrest were issued but, when these were sent for execution in April 1656, it was found that they had left Beas secretly in February, abandoning their property. Five of them were traced to Malaga. The other four were said to have gone to Prietra Buena, but there the track was lost. All were duly prosecuted in absentia, and their effigies formed part of the Seville Auto of 1660. The party that went towards Portugal was a family group of five, Diego Rodriguez Silva, his wife Ana Enriquez, her father Antonio Enriquez Francia, and her brother and sister-in-law, Diego Enriquez and Isabel Rodriguez. They pushed through without stopping to Rio Seco, where they rested four days and then, hiring a guide, they traversed the mountains of Portugal, traveling only by night. Settling in Villa Pinel, they tried to mend their broken fortunes, Ana Enriquez by keeping a shop and Diego Rodriguez by turning his hand to whatever he could find to do. At one time we hear of him as driving a thousand sheep to Lisbon for sale. Apparently, by way of precaution, they appeared spontaneously before the Tribunal of Coimbra, which treated them mercifully, imposing no fines but ordering them not to leave Pinel without permission. Misfortune pursued Diego and, in 1671, he returned to Spain, stopping at Talavera de la Reina, whence he sent for his wife and children and father-in-law, telling the rest to remain. He took the name of Del Aguila for himself and De los Rios for his wife, and settled for two years in Seville, where his father-in-law died. Thence they removed to Damiel, where the Inquisition found them at last and arrested them, February 18, 1677, some seventeen years after they had been burnt in effigy in Seville. As two or three of the Beas fugitives, who had gone to Malaga, were on trial at Toledo in 1667, it is probable that none escaped save those who remained in Portugal. Two years and a half were spent on the trials of Diego and Anna, ending with a sentence of irremissible prison and San Benito. Anna had broken down under this wandering life of incessant vicissitudes and anxiety. She had become the victim of epilepsy, melancholia, and hypochondria when her pitiless judges sent her to prison for life in vindication of a religion of infinite love and charity. End of section 36. Recording by Robert Sherman, Jr., Washington, D.C. www.nyckidd.com.